The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John. Merrin. Happy New Year. I missed you. I missed you too. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to our listeners. Very kind of you to still be with us. (laughs) Now, listen, John, this week... It's an exciting week, or rather everybody thinks it's an exciting week, or maybe it's a depressing week. I don't know. It's the 40th anniversary of the beginning of the calculation of the FTSE 100. But, but, I want to be absolutely clear. All the other columnists are saying that the FTSE 100's birthday is January the 3rd, but I want to be absolutely clear, and I'm reading here from our favorite book, John, uh, The Stock Market by John Littlewood. That is a great book. Uh Uh-huh. A landmark around this time was the launching on 13th of February, 1984, of the Financial Times Stock Exchange 100 Share Index, FTSE 100 or FTSE as it is commonly called. Simple weighted index by equity market capitalization of the largest 100 companies, FTSE 100 is displayed in real time at one minute intervals. 13th of February, 1984 is its first day of dealing from a base calculation of 1,000 on 3rd of January, 1984. 84. So I want to nitpick. I just want to be clear that you could argue about whether the FTSE 40th, FTSE, FTSE 100th, 40th birthday was January the 3rd or February the 13th. So we never have another whole round of writing about it in, in February. Excellent. Recycle all our columns in about six weeks' time. Absolutely. And the exciting thing is that when it came to the, the 40th anniversary, I wrote a column, you wrote a column, and John Authors wrote a column all of which were published on the same day, Wednesday this week. I know what I wrote in mine. Tell me what you wrote in yours. I'm a fan. You a fan? <laughs> yes. A, fa- a fan of John Authors for definite. And of yourself. No, I'm, I'm a fan of John Authors as well, but a, a fan of the FTSE 100. I'm a great fan of the FTSE 100. I wrote about how we misjudge it because we don't think about dividends and you know we forget that, that, that cash is incredibly important and it just keeps coming long-term cash month after month after month after month. And, it's, and that, that cash flow is incredibly undervalued, I think. So, uh, you know, I'm a fan. I'm still a buyer. Theoretically. I agree. And I do think that the, the FTSE gets a bit of a, a bad press. One thing I would say, and I'd add, this is what I wrote in my column, is that after 2008, there was a turning point in that, you know, because people often talk about, oh, look, the FTSE has barely moved since 2000. And that's not correct. You know, if you include dividends and all the rest of it, and you need to include dividends because the FTSE is a high yielding index. That's kind of the point of it. Um, so if you, need, if you want to compare things, then you need to do that. And actually, between 1984 and 2008, it did fine. Um, it was in the middle of the pack for most of that time. It beat Japan consistently, obviously. 
uh, but it also beat the US occasionally and it kind of beat the Euro Europe and uh, other stages. So it was perfectly respectable index um, and that's all in constant currency terms, by the way. So he did fine. But since 2008, it has been a laggard, even if you you know include dividends and all the rest of it. Um, and I think that's the, the, the element that I looked at in my piece because it has had kind of a rough time between then and now. And I suppose what I think is that um, there are reasons to think that the, the things that have been kind of holding it down over that period are now reversing or have at least run their course. So hopefully now that it's cheap and that the pound is cheap, there's every reason for it to, you know, have a better 40s than it did 30s. What are the, hang on, what are those things that have run its course, run their course? Well, there's the whole, uh, well, two things basically. So there's 0% interest rates, um, which A, sort of hammered, I mean, actually I didn't mention this in the, the, the piece, but obviously they make high-yielding stocks less appealing because there's lots of kind of growth stocks become more appealing. Um, but it also exploded the pension liabilities. So the corporate defined benefit pension schemes. 2008 is the point at which the the kind of move away from equities just turned into an absolute avalanche. Um, and so all of these defined benefit pension schemes, like that's the point at which the you know, it'd already been happening, but it kind of really took off the kind of move into gilts and the move out of kind of UK stocks. Um, but we're now at the point where there really aren't any more UK equities to shed on the behalf of corporate defined benefit pension schemes. And the, the other point to make about that, actually, and we've talked about this before, and I, I do think it's really interesting, is that as interest rates rise, the nominal deficits on those uh, pension schemes fall, they move into surplus. I mean, uh, there's been a bit in the papers about that over the last couple of months. And suddenly these pension schemes that were horribly in deficit and there was a sort of massive lag on some of these big companies in the FTSE 100 constantly having to shovel money into their, into their uh, pension funds to keep, them, keep the show on the road. Now they find they don't have to do that anymore. So that should, uh, in lots of ways, free up a lot of cash for these companies. Oh, exactly. Um, I mean, there was a, I can't remember if we mentioned it in the podcast or not, but there was a big one just before Christmas, a FTSE 250 company called Coates, um, and it uh, basically was able to pay off its pension deficit early because of this shift. Um, and now, you know, it was saying, okay, so that means we're going to have, you know, something like, in the region, I can't remember, it was about 10 million odds extra free cash flow every year. Which, you know, was a lot in the context. So, no, I mean, that's the other thing. So, if that's if that's changed, then companies are going to have more cash as well. And so, they'll become more attractive. But the point is, the big the big outflow from UK equities, it, it's hard. You know, at least one big factor in that can't really go any further from here um, and may reverse. I did write a column about a decade ago <laughs> saying when when interest rates turn, you should you should buy all these uh, companies with big pension deficits. Obviously, I was about eight years too early on that one. I should go and dig it up again. We can we can recycle that one too. Well, it's interesting though, because people forget that it was meant to be emergency monetary policy, and then the emergency just lasted for much longer than uh, pretty much anyone thought it would. It's not just about the FTSE 100, by the way. There's a lot of pieces out or coming out and more and more will come over the next few weeks about how cheap smaller companies are as well. And we've talked about this before, but there's an interesting piece of thematic research came out from um, P.L. Hunt uh, earlier this week about just how cheap small companies are and about the uh, the uh, pace of 
M&A, 40 transactions in 2023 of over 100 million, the average premium paid 50%, which tells you how cheap so many UK smaller companies are. And if you begin to see money flowing back in there, you're going to see money flowing back into the UK as a whole. And all this kind of thing, you know, it's, it's very it's very reflexive, isn't it? And that the more money that flows out of the UK, yeah. the more miserable it looks and the more money flows out and the more it underperforms and the more money flows out, et cetera. And that can turn on a sixpence. I mean, I'm, I'm telling people at the moment, you know, if you think that the UK can't, can't turn fast, look at Japan, which looked absolutely miserable for so long, so long, so long, so long. And then suddenly you're making 10% a year on it. You know, when it turns, it's very quick. Yeah, it is quick. And I mean... I mean, that Peel Hunt thing was actually quite an eye-opener because it was something like nearly a tenth of the AIM market by value just basically disappeared last year and um, not not in falling prices, but in transactions, which is, I mean, that's, you know, that's a lot. <laughs> um, I mean, in some ways, the, kind of the whole of the UK market is looking like, you know, an, an investment trust that's entered rundown. Um, you know, and it's... it's, it's they can't realise the actual value of the assets in this massive fund and therefore they're just getting, you know, nibbled away or chewed up in other ways. Yeah, it's interesting though. They do, Peel had new have a little list of things that might break the cycle. How do you get fund flow up? What can break the cycle? And they have a list of them. Increased upset by retail investors. So if a British ICA appears or there's some change to capital gains tax or a change to dividend tax on, on UK shares, those things don't seem that likely, do they? Uh, changes in allocations by pension funds and insurance companies, thanks to government incentivization and regulatory change and to enable a greater focus on performance rather than risk. I mean, that may happen, not necessarily in a way that you and I would approve of, but it may happen. Um, an increase in share buybacks, which may well happen when valuations are very low and there is this tax differential between capital gains and dividends, makes sense that you might see share buybacks going up. And then, of course, there is the thing that we've been going on about for ages. Would it be possible to cut the UK's level of stamp duty relative to other markets? It's incredibly high. Lots of other markets don't have a stamp duty on equity transactions at all. We do, and not low either. Changing that could be a real change. And of course, once something changes, you may begin to see the flows turn around. And then, as I say, it could happen very fast, both for the small caps and for the poor old FTSE 100. Yeah, I mean, ditching stamp duty on shares seems like a no-brainer. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't raise that much overall. And it's, like, it's not even something... You'd really struggle to make political capital out of that by saying, oh, you know, you're... It's like a tax break for the rich. I mean, it really isn't, you know, I don't really see why we've still got it. It's really quite a stupid tax. Mm, well, because, you know, something, something rich people. <laughs> yes, yes, that. Right. So there you go, everybody. Uh, FTSE 100, maybe at its birthday this week, maybe it's its birthday in a few weeks. Who knows? But either way, it's time to have a, have a good look at it, I think. Both John and I have written about that, and so has John Authors. So, uh, you know, get to Bloomberg and start reading those things. Now, John, we promised that we would, uh, from I don't know how, how many weeks ago it was, to have a personal finance tip every week. So what is it? Because I'm pushing this on you because I haven't got one. Well, I know that this was a rash decision on our part, but uh, no, I just uh, renewed our car insurance for the year and a half. It's gone up an awful lot. Mm, he's um, not telling so you about the crashes. Would, uh, I'm not going to even go there. <laughs> it's, um, it's gone up an awful lot and it's not entirely uh, my fault. Um, I would say, yeah, get on, a, go on the comparison sites whenever you're renewing your insurance this year. Sometimes it's not worth 
bothering with. Um, and you may find that, you know, when you go on it, that there's nothing there. But I would suggest doing it because if you can cut the price of insurance, it's actually going to be worth it this year because um, car insurance in particular has gone up a lot, partly because of, you know, inflation in car parts, inflation in car prices, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, and, and do it in good yeah. time. No, I would. Um, I actually did it with two days to spare this time for once, which um, is actually just about enough, but don't do it the day before. And you did your taxes in such good time as well. <laughs> the Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, a look at Saxo Bank's outrageous predictions for 2024. Steen Jacobson, Saxo's chief investment officer, joined me to walk through the eight strange predictions his team has for this year. We started our conversation unpacking this particular outrageous prediction. The US will usher in the end of capitalism with tax-free government bonds. So I think a lot of people would actually argue we already killed capitalism and there's nothing left of capitalism because, of course, if you look sort of from a free market perspective, you today, as you and I talk, we have Japan, the world's third largest economy, uh, have no price discovery. So their bond market has come to a standstill. There's no bid and offers going on. It's really only the government that regulates the price, uh, which to some extent uh, feeds uh, into other assets uh, in the case of uh, Nikkei. But let me take you through the argument we're doing here, and it very much relates to 2023. I think it's probably for the first time in our career, the two of you, two of us, that uh, people are putting question marks on the U.S. debt and its ability to be refinanced. Uh, so, you know, in economics lingo, we have a stock problem, which is the size of the debt, and we have a flow problem, which is the ever-increasing new issues that we see. 
clearly the reason we hit 525, 530, 530 in the 10 year was that the market simply said enough is enough. We cannot continue to finance this. So if you could look into 24 and there's already a schedule for issuance of debt in the US, it's very, very, very rich, even compared to a high uh, issuance this year. In other words, there's going to be more demand on your money, the investors' money. And if you extend that uh, sort of argument and saying, okay, if the government is going to mitigate uh, and create an additional demand, maybe the one of the things to go ahead and do is to make it tax-free or tax-deductible in, in terms of these earnings. And if you do do that, what, what is really happening? Let's assume we have a primitive economy. There's only fixed income and equity market. If you, from the government, saying, okay, you can have a return tax-free in, uh, in, in bonds, which everything being equal, even with prices going nowhere, is 45%. That equates to, with a 50% tax, to 8 to 10% return, uh, pretty much risk-free, against the stock market, which is ending the year at an all-time high. What that will mean to us is that the amount of capital going into the uh, debt financing of the public sector will increase in size and scope. And as such, of course, that will take away money from the smaller uh, but far more appealing, at least to most investors, uh, equity market. And if you do do that, of course, you are similar to what is happening in Japan. You're really disrupting the price discovery. And the government is continuously having a more uh, heavy hand in terms of the uh, running of the economy. So isn't that just an extreme kind of financial repression? It is. It is. That's another word for it. But I think the uh, end of capitalism is a better headline because we actually <laughs> need to discuss whether we – no, but I mean, you laugh, but you know, think about it. We, we are in a situation where regulation, wokeness, uh, the, the ESG, all of the frameworks that sits outside the actual clearing of prices in the market is getting bigger and bigger. When I started in banking as a trader, for every one trader like me, there was about one and a half person in back office and, and regulatory uh, people. Now, as I sit in Saxo, I'm one trader and I have about 25, 30 people if I have to leave the organizational chart, I see. So, you know, the hand of the government is just getting heavier and heavier. And, and most of it's... Uh, uh, its ability to actually help the individual investor or making the market a better place is actually uh, going the opposite way in terms of liquidity for the market. Okay. And so it's basically your, your point is that it's this inability to discover prices in, in the correct way that, that tells us that capitalism has come to an end and we now have basically government-run government run economies so we're getting close to that point. Exactly. And the you know when you and I went to, to school, uh, uh, university, uh, we learned one of the few principles that actually works in, in economics is that the marginal cost of capital has to be lower than the marginal cost, a uh, marginal return on the capital. And if you force the government hand higher, we know that the government sector, both in GDP terms but also in absolute productivity terms, is far less efficient than the than the, than the private market. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I think we might leave that very depressing one there. And move on to one of your uh, predictions that seems to me to be something of a triumph of capitalism, certainly a triumph for the corporate world. And a headline for it is, world hit by major health crisis as obesity drugs make people stop exercising. Yeah. So, you know, people were very keen on processed food. So the corporate world made piles of processed food. We ate all the processed food and then we're like, oh, I don't really want to be fat. So the pharmaceutical giants have managed to create a drug that will mitigate the effects of eating the food that they created in the first place. Good thing or bad thing? <laughs> 
Yeah, that's that's really what we ask you, and I'd be very interested in, in your your personal opinion. But let me take you through the argument here. What, what we're really asking you is, as an investor and as a private individual, is it a society you want to live in where you can buy a pill and then you don't have to uh, be responsible for the actions of your life? One. Two, don't we risk if we allow a pill to be part of the healthcare uh, treatment of obesity that we, in the process, is doing people a disfavor? One, because the social mobility, everything being equal, should be reduced. So, in other words, people who already do not have access to uh, uh, sporting equipment at home or even a, a gym membership, people who you know have to work two jobs to 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 make ends meet. Uh, people who have no ability to go down to the local football club, the golf club, uh, going uh, Zumba dancing uh, or in any other shape or form sort of be part of society. If we allow these people to be able to sort of have a lower hurdle rate in terms of feeding themselves, in terms of eating junk foods and everything with no consequences, I think we end up in a situation where we uh, are really – uh, not helping the course, we're making it worse. Also, do, do remember that all of the tests so far have shown that as soon as you're off the pill, you will put on the same amount of weight that you had to shred. So in other words, this pill is either for lifetime or it's, uh, it's, it's something that you need to abandon altogether and really takes responsibility for your own life. The other, other uh, sort of part of the equation here is the healthcare sector. The obesity rate in the U.S. is closing in on 50% of the population. In Mexico, it's above 60 so if you sit there in a, in a utility function, being a health official in those countries, of course, you're going to argue that, you know, maybe this pill right now is marginally too expensive to work. But if the price came down by 50% or 80%, maybe this is the way we're going to move forward. We're going to uh, you know, prescribe this to most people who are obese. And in that process, we're going to reduce the cost of the healthcare system. I personally, and, and I'll be interested in your view, but my, I personally think that you know, of course, the obesity drug in terms of uh, the cardiovascular impacts it's had is positive. Uh, it's very costly, though. And, and as you say, the triumph of, of capitalism here being that the valuation of these stocks is extremely uh, elevated. And they are really in, in all things. And to be fair, they're really priced the next 10 years to perfection. Uh, so much so that uh, most people, uh, in order to justify first price, will have to see, especially in the U.S., that the healthcare. Uh, carriers will have to actually support uh, the this being under the insurance rate. So, you know, and if that does happen, of course, there'll be excess demand and probably the production will follow. So everybody expected to be on a pill cannot be on a pill. And all of a sudden you see McDonald's and Coke get consumption go through the roof, which is really our provocative call here. Mm. I don't know. I'm, I'm slightly more optimistic about these drugs than you are, I think. I mean, I look at it and, you know, people always say, well, people have to take responsibility for their own lives and people should eat better and people should exercise more or whatever it is that you want to say. But we've been saying that for decades and the obesity rates go up and up and up and up and up. So at some point we have to accept that it's not going to happen unless we do something extraordinary and incredibly undemocratic to the food industry. It simply isn't going to happen that 50% of America is going to go, well, I'm overweight and I'm going to take control of my own life by changing the way I eat and the way I exercise because, you know, the diet, the diet, look at the diet book industry, right? If it was possible for people to want to take control of this stuff and then to take control of it, that industry wouldn't even exist. So I look at it slightly differently to you. And I, and I do buy the idea that if you could get a cheaper version of this drug into the hands of uh, the 
large percent of the global population that is obese, then you do do something amazing to the health profile of the global population. And not only that, I don't know if you've been following it recently, but you can see that these drugs also change people's addictions to other things. So they stop people drinking alcohol. They seem to have an effect on people's drug intake. Now imagine, imagine a world without addiction. What would that look like? It's it's funny. It's how you read it. What I'm hearing is that you're very deficitistic. You, you're really giving out on mankind. You're really giving up the ability of people to take uh, control of their own destiny, which I think very much is in line with both the political climate, but also the accepted sort of consensus, the narrative of the world. Uh, I, I think differently. I, I really think the first derivative here would be a massive uh, lack of social... Uh, shows your ability to climb through the ranks. If you can't afford it already and you're going to get a pill, you are essentially to actually move out and it's going to get worse. So to me, it's acceleration. And, and in terms of the addiction to drugs, it's, it's kind of funny, and, and I should be careful how I phrase it, but a number of my clients who's been on the drug has actually complained about the fact they lost their social life by being on it because simply the uh, the ability to take a drink and go out for a, a bottle of wine or a beer and, and going out for dinners was actually all but disappeared for them. So... I, I'm not sure. I, I think the truth is some, somewhere between your, what I'll call, uh, uh, you know, pessimistic uh, and my pessimistic, in your view, <laughs> view of this. But 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 we we are not going to be predicting. We we're just saying, you know, there is a first derivative and a second derivative on this so-called miracle pill. We don't think it's a miracle pill. We think it's it's another addition to the way of life. And, and and along the lines of what you just argued, people people will not be able to change their life, and hence. This is going to end up with less social mobility. It's going to end up with people, more people getting obese, not less. Mm. But shorter term, shorter term, if an awful lot of people take it, let's say 10% of the obese people in the US take it, that's got to have a knock-on effect to the alcohol industry, to the fast food industry, to the processed food industry. Absolutely. So, you know, we've been... uh, I wrote a, f- a few months ago about the effect it would have on the fast food industries when I saw when I saw how le- how much less pizza people ate once they started taking the drug. No, no, I mean it, it's it, it's pretty clear, and but but I think when we do these outrageous predictions, of course, what we're trying to force is a non-linear uh, concept. So so, and I will argue with no disrespect that that the, you are giving me a linear version of it. So there will be a marginal reduction in consumption of alcohol, marginal reduction of uh, McDonald's meals being served. Uh, I'm saying that the wider consequences here is that you lose social mobility, you lose the ability to actually address the fact that people need to be accountable. I, I would say from a philosophical point of view, what I want the world to do in terms of that, in terms of healthcare, in terms of uh, support for constitutions around the world, uh, all, all of these are under attack. But the only thing we do do is to accept that uh, it's uh, going to get worse. I would like, like you to think that there were rational, straightforward uh, solutions to things. I would like to think that, uh, for example, back to debt, we could be more careful around our, be- our debt uh, in the UK and in the US, that we could spend less, that we could manage our public sectors on less money. And I'd like to think that we could, uh, that the obese of the developed world would be able to change their behaviors. But one thing that you and I both know already is that that isn't happening, hasn't happened for decades, and is l- unlikely to happen. So surely all we can do is mitigate it. Yeah, or, or just acknowledge that we are in the final inning of uh, pretend and extend. I think 24 very much because it's a very, very clear election cycle. 
that uh, everything's going to be weighed even worse in 24. But I think ultimately the way and the evolution, both economic and socioeconomic factors happens, is that we test this to the limit. Basically, we break systems down to rebuild them. So I think you know, we are in the final inning, uh, not just outrageously calling on that, but I think we're in the final inning of a world where we are we are moving towards uh, the end game. We are, you know, baseball analogy. We are probably in the middle of the ninth inning, not even at the, at the top of the ninth inning. And and I think in twenty four we move to the bottom of the ninth inning because all the elections that we see in this year and the election we're going to see next year is going to be about anti-establishment and going away from actually, like you say, it's, it's going to get worse. The accountability on both political political parties, but also central banks and individuals, is going to be less uh, strenuous and less demanding. And as such, we're going to end up in a position where we're actually going nowhere. So what happens in the end game, Steen? In end game, we end up with more obese people on the pill. We end up in a situation where where ultimately the U.S. has to introduce YCC, uh, similar to what Japan did. Uh, and, and I think we discussed this before, you and I. Would you mind just explaining uh, YCC, Yield Curve, curve Control, to our non-experts? Yeah, so what yield curve control means that the government, and uh, in this case, uh, most likely the uh, the, the central bank, deta- uh, the Finance minister of finance, dictates what what the price of money should be. So, so there's uh, uh, no ability to rates to move up and down uh, dictated by the market, which creates an artificial stimulus to the economy, similar to what we've seen in Japan. And the point I'm trying to raise is that everything the Bank of J- Bank of Japan and Japan has done over the last 15 years has been repeated by the Western world inside uh, five to six years. So uh, as often as we criticize the Japanese for what they're doing, we have to continue to do everything they ever done, including QE, which was uh, initiated, of course, for many years uh, before uh, the Western world in, in Japan. So I've, I think we know the future. We can just look to Japan. And, and, and that is a standstill uh, economic model. Uh, social mobility, again, very low. But, but the fact is that, that Japan can afford it. Most of these countries that come into this new crisis or the Japanese version like the U.S. cannot afford it. So something needs to break, and something is breaking already politically, in my opinion, and that's what the U.S. election about in 24. Uh, and ultimately, we will have a new capital structure and a, a re-engagement of the market as a distributor of goods. But we are one, two years away from that breaking point, but we're moving towards it. And right now, we're celebrating lower rates. We're celebrating that you know the inflation just seems to have gone by the wayside. But underneath that is that we are still imbalanced on energy, energy sufficiency, cybersecurity, defense spending, uh, social programs, as we just discussed. So the imbalance is just increasing. It's like a pyramid which is standing on its head instead of on, on a sort of the wider, wider, wider part of the uh, pyramid itself. So uh, it's, it's in control right now, but it's escalated towards higher volatility. Okay, well, let's, ki- let's stick with the 2024 uh, presidential election. And another of your outrageous predictions is that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. may win that election. Now, here's the extraordinary thing, Steen, which is that last week's guest said that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. will change the conversation around the election such that we don't see either a Biden or a Trump presidency. So talk us through how you see that conceivably happening. It really comes from the success we had in calling Trump winning over Clinton and, and calling the Brexit, which has nothing to do with our intelligence or our ability to predict the future. But we did realize in both cases that Mrs. Clinton was the most unelectable person ever in the history of U.S. elections. There was no way in hell that there was, she was going to be voted into office, which means, which meant that Trump was more likely than not to actually to, to succeed. Similarly, as, as you very well remember yourself, the Brexit campaign, uh, the yes campaign in, in under the Brexit, 
was really talking down to people. They were really thinking uh, that the UK voters were stupid. You know, coming up with numbers like you're going to lose £2,133 over the next uh, 10 years. Uh, yeah. And this is the same people that can't predict the interest rate the next three hours. Uh, so so they sort of lost it and became an anti stephenson vote. It was never about the EU, in my opinion. If you fast forward that to 24, you have on one side a president, which in the consensus of the market, not, not my saying, but is anti-democratic. He's actually in court uh, fighting uh, the claim that he is anti-democratic. And you have a president who are uh, more likely than not to die on, on, on while, while in office, uh, or at least cognitively uh, disabled uh, somewhat. Uh, that's probably 30% of the vote on each side, which is fixed uh, before we start the election, which means that 40% is un, undecided. Into the mix comes a royal name in the U.S., uh, maybe not to the young people, where I think Kardashian is more famous than the Kennedy family, but, but I think the Kennedy family comes with a royal brand. Uh, and as someone, as a, as a candidate, as you probably discussed last week as well, a candidate who is actually for everything, he's not against anything except uh, war, which he wants to reduce the U.S. role in, the, in terms of the global uh, policing they do. He was uh, an anti-vaxxer. He was, uh, and he's very much looking for electoral reforms. He uh, is very much a guy who wants to go up against the pharmaceutical and, and the healthcare system, as, as we discussed earlier. He's a person who uh, is populist in every shape and form that you can imagine. There isn't really, uh, if I'm, I'm a bit harsh here, if I'm an economist uh, or, or even a, a social uh, economist, uh, I don't think there's really a lot in the program. But the thing is, he is less hated. He's less not liked than Biden and Trump. I mean, Biden uh, and Trump has their own candidacy. But I can easily see that, that, that similar to your guest last week, that at a bare minimum, he becomes an impact. He will definitely hurt uh, right now Trump more than he's going to hurt Biden because he appeals to the kind of same voters. Uh, and, and secondly, uh, you know, uh, the last time an independent ran with some success was uh, Josh Wallace in 1967, if I'm not mistaken. He got to 28% of the vote. Uh, similarly, when Clinton won under Rasperow, Rasperow had only tallied about 8 9% in the vote, but it was enough to actually put Clinton in the seat and, and, and de-seat and dethrone uh, Bush the first. So, you know, these, these guys that come in from the part and independently can play a role. He is a national name because of his name, Kennedy. And he is not someone that people uh, feel is part of the establishment. And I think the U.S. election, the outcome U.K. election, the European uh, European Commission election, uh, EU election that comes up, and all elections that we expect during 24, I think will be driven by one factor and one factor only. It is not going to be on people selecting who they think is the right person to, to be in office. They're going to deselect everyone else first before they get to their candidate. And that, that is very much in line with what we saw in the Netherlands, very much in line with what we saw in Brazil, what we saw in Argentina. And I think uh, continuously uh, through this phase of a pretending extent uh, into the final inning here, I think that is the driver. People are not voting for what they want. They're voting for what they do not want. And that is far easier for people to define because that can be one single thing that they are, they are uh, anxious about. Okay, so if you were to make a non-outrageous prediction about who would win the presidential election, who would it be? Biden, uh, simply because uh, I think uh, the, the power of the Kennedy name is enough to take enough votes away from, from Trump. From Trump. So the most likely result is, is another Biden present presidency. It seems extraordinary, doesn't it, from the outside? It does. And, and 
it's, it's a classic case of uh, what I just outlined. It's not because people vote for him. It's because, the, in this case, two other candidates uh, is perceived to be worse. And the UK election? It's tricky because of the, the, the electoral system in the UK, where I think really the, uh, the key component is the Scottish vote, which I think is, if I'm not mistaken, is 55 uh, votes. Uh, I think they can really make a difference. And they're probably going to swing more Tory than the overall national polls show right now. So I think it will be a Labour win, but I don't think it will be outright as, as good as people expect, simply because the way you have constructed the election system in, in the UK. So to some extent, uh, too many people will be anti-Labour uh, uh, for its history. Uh, and uh, whether it's based in a rational or, or thought process uh, is not is really irrelevant. Uh, that there, there will be special interests that will play a key role. It's interesting, isn't it, that the, going back to Scotland, that the SNP over the last decade or so have managed to convince everybody that Scotland is a uniquely progressive and left-wing society, whereas in fact it's just a, a, a split. If you take out the SNP, it's a, it's just a, a split in in that kind of sense as the rest of the country. And that that is exactly the point, and and and, and very much vested in, in in actually being part of the UK and not being independent, which, which of course. But you know as well as I do, facts doesn't matter in today's world. They will matter again one day. Right, let's go one day. <laughs> one day, that's what you're worried about, exactly. Let's go back to, um, we were talking about yield curve control and we were talking about uh, about Japan. And you make a, a, a great prediction here that Japan will have a 7% GDP growth, which you call lucky seven GDP growth. And uh, that is going to force the Bank of Japan to abandon its real curve, uh, yield curve. Yield curve control. We should just call it YCC. It's easier. Um, how's that going to work? Yeah, so I'm just back from Japan, and uh, it's pretty clear to me that uh, given the opportunity, Bank of Japan and the Ministry of Finance in Japan will slow walk uh, the normalization of interest rate policy in Japan. They can't simply afford to pay the market price. You know, with wages at four percent and inflation at three. You know, the real rates in Japan shouldn't be minus 300 basis points. It should be plus 100 or 200. Uh, and, and, and it's not happening. Why is it not happening? Because of this yield control, so the artificially low interest rate. Lucky seven addresses the fact that the number seven is apparently a lucky number in Japan. So we sort of provocatively said, how about if nominal GDP reaches 7% because of these negative real rates they have? That makes uh, you know, the economy overheat, wages start to rise, which they already have done. And on top of that, I think Japan plays a pretty central role in the recalibration uh, of the uh, semiconductor industry. It's pretty clear that uh, everyone wants, needs, to, needs and wants to get out of Taiwan over the next 10 years. One of the few places where you both have the technology and the internal, uh, the logistics uh, to do that and, and, and replace it is in Japan. So your trend is you know, on top of being uh, top of the class in, in automation and robots. They're also now increasingly seeing these heavy, heavy investments into uh, uh, factories and, and semiconductor uh, related industries. So I think Japan could see a very big headline number, which is asynchronic to the rest of the world property in 24. That will put pressure on the upside on on, on uh, the interest rate in Japan, and and I think as an outrageous call, but also as a real call, the the the, the biggest single event risk we can look in, uh, that we know of in 24 is actually if YCC is abandoned by Bank of Japan, that will increase the uh, normal uh, uh, interest rate in the world by 
anywhere from 25 basis point to a full percentage point if they let go. Because, uh, you know, as you know, Japan is the biggest marginal buyer of debt in Europe, in the GCC countries and in the U.S., Okay, so should we manically buy Japanese assets? I think you you have a you know you have better than a fifty fifty chance that your currency rate is going to be uh, pulling for you and and pulling pretty heavily. So it's a little bit binary. Either you're going to make twenty percent, twenty five percent on the currency, or you're going to probably make a, a decent return on just owning the assets for the balance of the year until they 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 remove the slow walking and start running to 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 abandon it. Okay, so we can be we can be bullish on uh, can we be bullish on Japanese equity markets as well as bond markets? I would say bond market I've given up on, and I think every international investor has have done the same. But I would say I'm definitely into a market which is running as hard as it is right now. It would not be a silly idea to buy at yen calls against the dollar as as a protection. It's probably a much better protection than buying a put on the stock market because if Japan becomes the catalyst for change in in the, in the monetary outlook. Uh, it will have severe impact on the currency rate. And, and to the extent that dollar yen probably should trade uh, 100 and, and, and not where it is today at 141. Right. What next from your outrageous predictions? Let's see. Oil at 150. That's kind of interesting. How does oil get to 150 and stay there? Over the last few days, we've seen uh, that, uh, unfortunately, the Middle East crisis seems to be opening on other uh, other other borders as well. Uh, there's been a, a dire warning from uh, the Israeli towards uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, we have also seen that uh, apparently the security apparatus now is telling Hamas outright that similar to what happened after the Olympics in, 90, in 1972, we're going to go after every, go after every single uh, person who's in the leadership of Hamas wherever they are in the world. So, so I think there is there is an escalation of the risk premium potentially in, in terms of the Middle East. On top of that, I think the OPEC is very unhappy about uh, their inability so far to actually to to get the market to accept that they are reducing production. Uh, obviously, the market is skeptical because the the compliance is pretty low. Uh, and then you know the the third one, which is probably the more positive one, is that if we if we leave all of the interest rate that the market cuts that the market is pricing in, we potentially look at an acceleration in the second half of next year, both on, on, on inflation, but also on the on, on the growth side after seeing a, a pretty poor first half of 2024. 20, so, uh, so, so I think, you know, if we go as deep as I expect in interest rate, I think that there will be some stimulus impact coming from that. Okay. And then the Saudis uh, buy the... <laughs> <laughs> the Champions League. <laughs> the Champions League, exactly. Yep. Uh, because... Um, I mean, it's easy, to, easy, <laughs> it's e- easy to understand why. I mean, FIFA is up for everything that has to do with money, right? I don't think I'm going to get a, get sued for saying that. But, uh, but, but uh, you know, let me take you through the, the story. So we know the live golf tour was, uh, was bought by the uh, Saudis. And a lot of, you know, American golf, in particular, been asked why... Why did you join the live tour? I mean, it's it's an inferior tour in, in sporting terms, uh, and and you know whether you want or not, probably you're sanctioning some of the things that goes on in, in Saudi Arabia. And the answer back was very classical and very what what an economic agent should say. They say, listen, if someone came to offer you ten times your salary, and uh, in the process making sure that you were uh, made whole for the next uh, generation, maybe next free generation, why wouldn't you take the money? So really, again, what we are trying to provoke is uh, the thinking is theoretically, if the money is big enough, is everything up for sale? Uh, I think personally, unfortunately, along the lines we discussed a few times already, 
I think that is the case. Uh, there's a number of European clubs that if Saudi and, uh, and FIFA came to them and said, why don't we replace the, uh, the Champions League with a format where we treat free double the, the prize money and we make it a little bit more structured. You pay a little bit less matches and the final and the semifinals will be in the GCC. I, I think they will be gained, uh, if nothing else, because they will argue simply to the American golfers that they have the interest of their supporters and their shareholders at, at uh, too too hard. All right, this, that, that's sli- slightly outside my terms of reference. Anything anything to do with football, but I'm glad we covered that one. Glad we covered that one. <laughs> Can we move on though to um, to AI? This is an interesting one. Um, the tell tell us your predictions, or sorry, outrageous predictions around AI. What Peter Gunnery, my equity analyst, did, he asked a very relevant question. What, what, is, what, what would have to happen for us to give guardrails to AI or to stop the progress uh, into infinity in the use of AI? And, and he came up with the answer, which I think is very classical. He said there needs to be a national security incident for, for this to be stopped in the process. We know the EU commission and government will not be able to do it. Uh, first, they find, need to find a political mandate, and then the execution is difficult. But imagine, and this is just imagine, but imagine the National Security Advisor was caught on video and on tape and, and release of emails delivering uh, information in a, in a restaurant in Paris uh, to his counterpart in China, none of it being real, but all of it done so well in deep fake that it would be very, very difficult for the National Security Agency and others to, to figure out what was really going on. That would, of course, raise the alert with them. And most likely uh, and not, they will say one or two things. First, they will immediately put a ban on OpenAI and Microsoft and everyone else to share their databases outside uh, non-compliant parties that is not approved by the National Security Service, uh, National Intelligence Service. Uh, but on top of that, it raises, and, and you know the positive impact of deepfake, of course, being I had my Dutch colleague the other day send me uh, an analysis in Danish. He doesn't speak Danish, but of course, he used one of these AI uh, deep uh, fake things. And, and so the, the positive aspect is you can do it and you can create sort of uh, translation and, and, and vital material. But the deep fake is that and we know it goes on already. I mean, imagine what goes on in terms of the intelligence service, in terms of deep fake, this, that, and the other. So, uh, so I think this is a real call. The only way we get controls on AI is national security breaches. That isn't particularly good for the AI industry, and not good for the um, the bubble for the stock prices, etc. Suddenly, that's exactly the kind of thing that will uh, will destroy that bubble. Absolutely, and we are not saying it's happening, and we're just saying that deepfake, in our opinion, is the single bigger risk for uh, for, for for this potentially to happen. All right. Um, the last one that I want to ask you about, because I'm interested in this one, is luxury demand collapsing as the EU goes Robin Hood introducing a wealth tax. And it's interesting, we haven't heard as much about wealth taxes over the last year or so as we did in the previous few years when there was endless conversation about wealth taxes in, in uh, across the EU and the US. And also we talked a lot about wealth taxes here, but it's a conversation that's slightly petered out. Um, so I'm interested to see it coming back here in terms of a uh, a wealth tax on luxury goods. And there's been also lots of conversation, of course, about uh, you know putting a higher rate of VAT on luxury goods. So how do you define luxury? We'll never quite know, uh, which is the same kind of kind of idea. It, it's, it's a great catch you have on, on it being less less relevant in, in, in the narrative the last two years. And I think that's simply because the fiscal dominance was allowed to run. And, and, and don't forget, a wealth tax sits below, one, jealousy as a psychological phenomenon, 
but it also sits behind sort of the populist movement where a government is coming up short on tax receipts. The best way to make a most fair in citation mark uh, way of reining in some more uh, tax receipts is to go out to the wider public and say, listen, we're going to go after the rich. And what is kind of super ironic is that Norway right now is acting more like a communist country than uh, the richest country in the world. Uh, as you probably know, Norway introduced a welfare tax, which made, I think, about 1,000 to 1,500 of the richest people leave the country. It's really punitive. And, and maybe that is the maxim that uh, only only the rich can afford to be socialists, that, that is playing out. But the uh, but but the story here simply is, I mean, if, if we narrow it down, it's really government coming off short on tax receipt. What is the easiest, most popular with the least amount of voter impact, maybe even with a positive voter impact that you can do, is of course to tell the 99% quartile, we're going to tax the rich more. The great irony being there is zero tax revenue relevant in, in doing it. But it's, uh, of course, something that is perceived to be doing something, again, in citation mark fair. Yeah. And uh, only the rich pay and nobody thinks that they're the rich. So it's always somebody else who pays this tax. Exactly. But well, 2% is quite high. And it's enough to make people want to move yeah. very quickly. It is. I mean, it was at half a percent and now it's at the 2%. And if and the problem is that welfare tax is kind of unfair. If you don't realize any money, you can end up in a situation where you, where, and even if you lose money year over year, you have to sell some of your assets to keep your assets. That That kind of doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I had a guest on a little while ago who said that one of the things that they never bought was luxury goods companies, uh, not because they worried about wealth taxes, because they felt that if you had any eye to ESG, the majority of the large clients of the wealth companies weren't people that you'd be happy to pop under your S. So they were. it's not a reasonable sector to hold equities in. No, I, I, I fully concur with that. That makes sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I fully concur with that. The problem with ES and G is no company is all three. So depending on whether you go for the S or for the G or for the E, you're going to end up with very, very different economic environment. I mean, there's, I don't think there's anyone that claims that uh, that uh, Meta is, is, is very G. Uh, they may claim they are E, uh, but they are certainly not G <laughs> if you look at their capital and certainly not S. And certainly not S, exactly. But but nevertheless, if you find an ETF that is green or ESG compliant, you'll very often find Meta. So so you know, someone needs to explain to me how that works. I don't think anyone can. And we're getting to the getting to the point where people are beginning to understand that you know the ESG are in the main in conflict with each other, right? And going back to your other guest, I think the, the point really, the super point here is that S and G doesn't matter. It's only E that people are interested. in. We're driving the value of E, but S, you know, somewhat, if, if it follows, but G's, no one monitors uh, G. Steen, can I finish this conversation by asking you about your non-outrageous predictions for next year? Looking into the rest of this year, what is it that you actually expect to happen? Where, what, what do you see happening in stock markets, for example? So as, as you and I tape this, the market is full of conversation about that the central banks, uh, ECB, Bank of England, and the Fed uh, are uh, fighting the market. The market is saying there will be more cuts than the central banks, and a lot of people are telling me that they're, they're, they are pricing it too much. I actually think this is the other way around. I think it's too little is priced in because the, the cut in interest rate that we've seen is really driving by a subpar 
performance on, on, on inflation, we are still to see the full impact on a very high for very long interest rate into the economy. So I expect the next sort of uh, thing to happen is that we will maintain a low interest rate and lower growth. But as we come into Q1 next year, actually real rates with the pace of which the Fed is indicating will rise to 325, 350 basis point. And, and that, is, that doesn't work. So if, if, if rates are going down, they're actually going to go down more in order to get real rates down to 100 to 150. That will be my number one focus uh, on the positive side. On the negative side, I go back to Bank of Japan. Whatever Bank of Japan do will have a outside uh, impact on the rest of the world. I don't think uh, young people in the market today fully understand the full impact on the excess saving that sits in Japan and finances everything from tri-finance uh, in ships and and factories to uh, to uh, carry trades in RCN. I mean, if, if that flow reverses back, it's something that will impact all of us, whether we want it or not. So pretty much what we need to, on, on the risk side, needs to wake up to every day is checking the dollar yen rate and comments on the markets. But but interest rate going much lower than, than, than the market expect. And it's particularly now that the market is saying, oh, this is too much. I, I wholeheartedly disagree. I actually think we need far, far lower real rates in the U.S., Okay, so where should the retail investor put their money then, do you think? The ordinary investor. In the UK, it's very simple. I mean, buy as much of two years and five years and 10 years of government bonds as you can. Uh, the uh, Bank of England this week was very slow in acknowledging what is going to happen. And what will happen is that because you had so idiosyncratic reasons why your inflation went up, you're going to have the same idiosyncratic reason why it goes down. So as we come into sort of all of these things running out, uh, regulatory and framework-wise in, in January and February, uh, we would see a massive drop in interest rate. I will say there is a 10% return, which is close to zero risk in, in, in being long the bond market. Uh, that That is for the taking, and I think people should put at least 50% of that into it. And then you need to address uh, all the issues that we just talked about in terms of what is the world short of? The world is short of productivity, short of real solution to the real economy. And find some stock that sits in that sector, you're fine. If you buy stocks that are sensitive to the global economic growth rate, you're probably at risk. But uh, your first part of next year should be uh, pretty okay for investors. But I think the, the best assets, certainly risk rated, but also also not risk rating it. I think uh, fixed income is the way to play. And it's especially in the UK. Same for Europe. Germany uh, needs a significantly lower real rate. Uh, Europe does it, US needs it. So whatever wherever you are, but 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 particularly for a UK investor, it, it's pretty clear to me they need to be long, long, long uh, fixed income. Okay, well that is a a great place to end something, something positive and proactive for our listeners to do. Um Steen, thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. And I think I'm the most positive person you ever interviewed, just for the record. Yeah, you basically are, and it's not that positive. <laughs> <laughs> The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John, what do you think of Steen? I mean, again, we spoke to Steen last year, right? And you look at these things and they're supposed to be outrageous predictions and you read your way through them and you think, well, yeah, that could happen. That could happen. Yeah, no, Steen's, I mean, Steen's good value. And these predictions I always think are, are interesting. I mean, as always, there's a few that I think just won't happen. But there are the other ones where you're thinking, actually, that is quite a, it's quite hard to make that sound outrageous without you know, tweaking some of the language to drum. I mean, the whole thing about um, the one I thought was the, and you mentioned this in the podcast, but the Robert Kennedy thing um, about him kind of stealing votes from Trump. I mean, Pippa said basically the same thing um, just a couple of weeks ago before Christmas. And that that one feels like quite a, a high possibility um, outcome. Well, it is. I mean, as Dean and I said, you know, you look, you look at uh, the the current candidates for U.S. president, and you think, well, it's inconceivable, inconceivable that the you know greatest bastion of democratic capitalism on earth could once again elect either Trump or Biden. So something else must happen. Surely, something else must happen. Oh yeah, and I do. Th- I think this Dean's point about people voting against someone rather than voting for someone is a really good one and it's really overlooked and I think one thing because lots of people seem convinced that Trump's definitely got to win this time round but they forget that last time round he was up against someone even more unpopular whereas if he hadn't been then you know he probably wouldn't yeah, have won that yeah, time yeah. and you know maybe it's the same this time maybe. round maybe which brings us on to the end of capitalism in the USA I mean I did think this was really interesting because you know this is this is possible very possible the US budget deficit is is particularly high. The debt payments are uh, debt payments off the scale, nuts, you know, the amount of money that has to file out into debt payments. So there should be or there will be intense pressure to try and oomph demand for US treasuries. And that's particularly the case if one of his other predictions were to come true, i.e. the Japanese have to have to avoid yield curve, con- uh, get rid of yield curve mm. control, and you yeah. suddenly find a pile of uh, bond market money flowing back into Japan and out of other bond markets, the US is going to be in a whole pile of trouble. They're going to really need to get people into treasuries. And so take making income from government bonds tax-free seems like a pretty straightforward way to go, even if it does destroy capitalism. Yeah, my one issue with this one is that I'm not sure how that would go down really in the US. Why? 
I think the well, because I think the US is still, you know, at the end of the day, still quite an entrepreneurial place. It's still got a, a sense of the idea of the private sector being crowded out by the public mm-hmm, sector, mm-hmm. and I think that it's possible that a large enough group of people would see through that to basically, you know, be against the idea. But I mean, you know, that's more sort of like hope placing my faith. I was going to say, look at you with your faith in the, in the people. Well, maybe, maybe not the people, but the, but the mentality, I could totally see it happening almost anywhere else, but I can see there being possibly sufficient objections to it over there. I don't, I don't know though. I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly not implausible. And it was scary, actually. He's right. It would. I mean, that would be, you know, given that where interest rates are anyway, and the fact that there is going to be a lot of competition for capital all over the place. Um, yeah, you do have to kind of think that that would be pretty damaging. But I, I, that's what I'm, I'm. You kind of hope that they would realise it would be damaging because you can't. You can't if you if you're killing the golden goose just so that you can feed your creditors for a bit longer, I'd have thought the US would just be, if you like, arrogant enough to think, well, we're the US, you know, we're the only country where MMT is feasibly, you know, possible for a period of time. So yeah, Steve was very end of times, wasn't he? I mean, I like Steve, um, but he is sort of like the the only. Pretty much the only mainstream person, or you know, close to mainstream person, who's actually an Austrian economist. And Austrian economists are basically always end times, and I have a lot of sympathy for the Austrian view. Um, but like, I mean, the, one of the things that totally disagreed with me more was the health thing and the the, the um, anti obesity. Yeah, we nearly pills. got into a bit of argy bargy on that one, didn't yeah. we? Yeah, I, I and I thought I, I just I was glad because I was re- I was reading the transcript and I was thinking. I was getting kind of quite irritated, and then you came back and basically mentioned all the points that I had mentioned, which was you know this this is um, you know the, the the whole idea that it's about kind of willpower and that anyone's I mean these 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 pills are not side effect free. There is a high hurdle rate to wanting to take them in the first place, and nobody actually likes being fat at the end of the day. Email um, usual address, please, just, Director John. Thank you. Well, no, it was just yeah, it's just another. It's it's just a very visible form of kind of weakness. It's like if I, um, you know, if I if I put on like a pound every time I drank a glass of wine, then I wouldn't be able to sit in this chair, you know. And if uh, you know, the, the the real problem with all these other addictions like gambling and smoking is that they don't show on your body, at least you know, certainly not until it's kind of very late in the day and also most of them have got a certain glamour about them and unfortunately having an issue with food doesn't um, so I mean yeah so I, I don't think A I don't think that people are going to give up exercising because there is a, a fat pill out there um, because the consequences of taking it are already pretty significant so no that was one I disagreed with I, know, I, th- I thought I thought you'd take more exercise because um, as you lose weight, as you lose weight, you're much more able to take yeah, exercise, and I... people like exercise. But I mean, I suppose my my issue with it wasn't quite the same as yours. It's just that you know we always tell people, or I certainly do when I when I'm writing my columns and when I'm arguing on people of Twitter, I always say to them, you know, it, you may want something to be like that, but yeah. that's not the way it actually is, and we have to work with the way things are rather than the way that we want things to be. So. Steen wants people to <laughs> yes. get a grip. 
He wants them to diet. He wants them to exercise. He wants them to do the stuff he wants them to do. But we know already that they're not going to do that. We know this doesn't work. We've got decades of experience in learning that nagging people to go on a diet and nagging them to exercise doesn't work because it's incredibly hard. I mean, where does he think the diet, the diet publishing industry came from? If diets worked, there'd only be one diet book. Yeah. And there'd be no self-help books if people were able to help themselves. No self-help books. Absolutely. You just need the one. So you can't, you can't work with how you want people to be. You have to work with human nature. And that's, I think, what, what these drugs do. And so they seem to me to be a rather wonderful thing. But, you know, there you go. There's uh, so many different opinions on that particular one. But, but a lot of, a lot of um, what Steen wants is people to people and economies and businesses and governments to behave in a rational way. And he sees, I think, an end game where people will behave in a rational way. And I'm not as confident as him in, in, in that end game. Well, that, that is the classic kind of Austrian perspective that you should be sensible. Well, everyone will suddenly, there will be a crisis. Yeah, you should be yeah. sensible. There will yeah. be a crisis, a horrible crisis, an end yeah. game that will make everybody see sense. And then things will be better. But we're bad at seeing <laughs> yeah. sense, aren't we? And this is, you just have to muddle through. <laughs> there is no end game. I think, I think all end game thinking from, you know, the, the stuff I do have sympathy with, like the Austrian thing, to the stuff I don't have sympathy with, like, you know, but, you know, the, 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 we're all going to die, like, imminently because of climate change as opposed to, you know, maybe in hundreds of years or something like that. I try so hard not to get onto climate change. So hard. I know. Sorry, sorry. That was uh, that, that was yeah. It was a probably a bad example. But what I mean is like apocalyptic yep. thinking is never, never helpful, helpful, regardless of the truths that are within both of those views. I mean, the Austrian view is right. There are lots of things wrong with the way that we've got our economy running, and you know it. It feels like we will get to some point where things have to change again, but they won't end. They will just change. You know, it's like the world didn't end when Britain no longer was the reserve currency. It just became something else. Um, and probably over time, the US dollar won't be the reserve currency anymore. It'll be something else. But all it'll be is a change rather than a, a kind of, you know, a wake up where we all suddenly start acting in a sensible way. Mm. So John and I, we have a prediction, don't we, John, for the year? There's a lot of forecasts out there at the moment. Everyone's making their predictions. Some are dramatic, some are not. But John and I would like to predict Another year of muddle through. Is that fair, John? Yeah, actually. Yeah, this year. Yeah, definitely. John, one last thing I wanted to mention about Steen. I totally forgot, and apologies, everyone. I completely forgot to ask him about Bitcoin or gold. So I did talk to him briefly afterwards about whether he would have chosen Bitcoin or gold had I asked him the question at the right time. And his answer was pretty simple. He said if he was young, if he was below 30, he might have more of a think about Bitcoin. Uh, But we didn't really get into that, which is a shame because I'd like to know why. However, his actual call would be gold. In a world, he says, with more debt and less tangible asset to back it, I think gold will fly. When one cycle ends, i.e. a hiking cycle, and another one starts, gold and commodities. So long gold for the next 10 years. That makes sense. Does to us. I'm just wondering if the reason he thought that his younger self would buy Bitcoin is because he thinks his younger self would be stupid. I'm going to get a special hate mail email address for you, John. (laughs) I look forward to it. Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We'll be back next week. 
In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And please do talk about our podcast with your friends as well. The more listeners, the better. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset-Webb. It was produced by Summer Sadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. A special thanks to Steen Jacobson and, of course, to John Stapak. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.